Welcome to this week's edition of the Quill Report and Weekly Review. This is Dr. Dominic Quill, along with Paul Harrell, uh, coming to you with this podcast, which uh, we come to every usually every Monday. So this is now Reformation Day, uh, October 31, 2022. And we have the top 10 articles that were determined by the readers of the Cool Report last week as they clicked on articles and the counter took note of uh, what they read. And that gives us our top 10. So if you want to help promote uh, what would be in the top 10, just read the Cool Report regularly during the week before, and it will show up um, on Monday, the, the following Monday. And then it's the list that comes out in the newsletter that we send out from the Aquila Report with the top 10 articles hyperlinked so that you can easily click on them and go to them directly. So it's a real pleasure for um, Paul and myself to come each week and review what is the top, what are the top 10 uh, uh, articles and then to give some discussion. So if you're listening to beforehand, you get an up uh, sort of insight into what's going to come. If you're listening afterwards, you can sort of interact with our discussion uh, by uh, thinking, well, we hit the mark or we didn't or whatever opinion you might have. But we're glad that you're here for this particular uh, podcast of the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. So, Paul, we're ready to um, go Let's forward here. And yes. uh, just remember that if you have your hammer and nail ready, you, you're going to nail something on a church door somewhere. That's right. That's right. And and we are armed with uh, with this top 10 list from last week. So yes, we need to really. start it off. Yes. Why don't you start off with the uh, 10 right. through 6? I'll do 5 through 1 and we'll start. All right. So number 10 from last week, Richard V. Reeves writes, the, the boys feminism left behind. Uh, coming in at number nine, we have Ann Stitch. Texas megachurch announces decision to leave United, United Methodist denomination. Number eight, Tom Hervey. Winsomeness redux, uh, focusing on the virtues expected of Christ's followers. Uh, and then we have, let's see, 10, 9, 8, number seven, we have um, Carrie Hahn, five recommended resources on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then number six, the ghastly truth about gender transitioning is coming out and liberal elites can't stop it. That is a piece written by Jonathan Van Maren. Okay, well, number five is Another Jesus, written by Andrew Matthews from Australia. Uh, number four, uh, again, the United Presbyterian uh, Methodist Church, United Methodist Church ex uh, exits accelerate. Uh, and then number three by Carl Truman into the anthropological chaos. Uh, number two, hey, PCA friends, you paying attention? And that is by Eric Woods Erickson. And then article number one, does the PCA ordain homosexuals? Well, yes, but, or no, but. And that is written by uh, Dr. Uh, James Bruce. And we start then with number one, uh, James Bruce, uh, professor of philosophy at the uh, John Brown University in Siloam Springs, Arkansas, and also a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, and in this, uh, he gives a summary of the speech that he gave on the floor of his presbytery, Hills and Plains, when they were debating the various overtures that are before the Presbyterian Church in America. There are 12 different over, uh, amendments that are being 
uh, proposed to the Book of Church Order, of which one, three of them deal with the uh, area of uh, the homosexual issue that's been swirling in the life of the church for the last number of years. Uh, Overture 15, which is uh, the one that says, men who describe themselves as homosexual, even those who describe themselves as homosexual and claim to practice celibacy by refraining from homosexual conduct, are disqualified from holding office in the Presbyterian Church in America. And so in this uh, article, Dr. Bruce is uh, asking the question, does the PCA ordain homosexual? And it depends on how you frame the, not only the question, but also the answer that you're uh, giving. And so what he basically says is, um, let's if we frame the issue correctly, I think we can say no. Uh, and then the but comes after that is there are these uh, unique special circumstances and they're not dealing with the homosexual agenda uh, per se. And so he lists it in a number of different categories for uh, the um, in the addition is a paragraph. He says it's appropriate as well as needed. Uh, the issue it seeks to address is unavoidable. And voting in the negative perpetuates one problem, creates another. So if you vote against it, uh, you may think you're being, you know, softy or, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, concerned about the uh, um, those who struggle with uh, same-sex attraction, but you're creating a whole other kind of problem. So, uh, so he takes them in order uh, in this um, article, which is well argued and something that hopefully that readers will not only absorb themselves, but share with their pastor and their elders as they uh, get ready to go to their presbytery meetings whenever it is that they, those respective presbyteries meet to vote. And uh, so it's appropriate to add this chapter, he says, of this paragraph to chapter seven of the PCA's Book of Church Order. And he gives the reasons for that. He mentions that the overture is needed uh, because that's the uh, pressing question. And the answer, yes, this paragraph achieves the compromise that we have been seeking, that is in the PCA. Uh, Though I voted for it on the floor of General Assembly, I did not add my name to the minority report that was um, as a member of the overtures committee. Uh, in part because I wondered whether Overture 15 was tight enough. And I worried that this overture would provide an admittedly hypothetical uh, person with uh, with the following defense. I should be ordained in spite of being completely beholden to homosexuality simply because I do not describe myself as homosexual. I think my initial reservations show how the language of this paragraph is helpful uh, compromise in adoption, it can help heal the divisions we face in the Presbyterian Church in America. So you, he goes on to describe how that can uh, can come about. So he says, um, so the, the fact is, in this case, he says it's needed because the church at a particular stage in history, given what is taking place uh, in general culture that is spilling over into the life of the church, uh, we it, the church needs to address things that tie uh, them, tie itself to those events so that the there's clarity coming from the uh, various courts of the church, the session, the presbytery, and the general assembly. And so he also then addresses that well, this unfortunately is an unavoidable issue. 
that uh, it, item fall, um, if the item one fails, that is this overture, anyone really uh, think that we won't face another overture next year? Of course we will. Uh, this issue won't go away on its face, on its own, until the church gives some kind of answer that is uh, really is substantive and deals with really what has the, the issue needs to take place. So in summary, item one is appropriate and needed because it addresses an issue that is unavoidable and we can't run away from it. And then he says, entering Overture 15 and never perpetuates one problem but creates another. This is number four then. Uh, he says, first entering this negative will continue the confusion of what is expected of men who have same-sex attraction as part of their um, biographies. Uh, continued uncertainty does a disservice to those coming forward for ordination. A man with a sense of conscience may think of himself ineligible for uh, ordination when in fact he would sail through ordination and prostrate and could even serve as a model for holy living. Uh, so he talks about that uh, aspect of it and unpacks uh, that. Secondly, he says we should recognize that answering this item in the negative will generate a whole new problem. Uh, as opposed to answering in the affirmative. Uh, General Assembly has placed the nomination in a precarious position in a way I did not realize when we voted last summer. If we say we will not add a paragraph saying men who describe themselves homosexual are disqualified from holding office, then it suggests, though it does not logically entail, that the PCA is comfortable with men describing themselves as homosexuals. Uh, I say... Um, uh, I say suggest, but not entails, because to reject the addition of something does not require anyone to accept the addition of its opposite. Even still, voting in the negative will suggest to people that the PCA is comfortable with its officers calling themselves homosexuals. And so when asked, does the PCA ordain homosexuals, can we, we cannot say uh, we can neither confirm nor deny that the PCA ordains homosexuals. But uh, but we must we must either say yes the PCA ordains homosexual but men must claim celibacy from homosexual conduct in order to or, or be ordained or we will say no but there must be but there may be men who count themselves among the temptations they resist put succinctly we will either be a yes but or no but denomination so items one and two. Item one places us before the stark choice will be a yes, a but or no, but denomination. Yes, we ordain homosexuals, but or no, we don't ordain homosexuals, but will we be a denomination that would that ordains men who call themselves homosexuals with caveats or will be a denomination that does not ordain such men with caveats. So that is where we're left with whether we like it or not, if it's stark, because of the nature of the culture that we're in and the times that we're in, the church needs to give a definitive um, answer. And I think I think on this Paul of um, Spurgeon, I think, is the one who said, if there is a mist in the pulpit, there will be a fog in the pew. And so there needs to be clarity on this. And uh, we uh, what Dr. Bruce is presenting here is that uh, this gives clarity to the uh, PCA uh, to if it would affirm uh, this particular overture. 
Absolutely. And the, the, the part that you zeroed in on here, uh, we should recognize that answering this item in the negative will generate a new problem. This is what I've been trying to say ever since uh, the PCA General Assembly adopted, you know, the, the minority uh, report and, and put Overture 15 before uh, the General Assembly and passed it. Uh, to be voted on, you know, by hopefully two thirds of the presbyteries. This is the exact point I've been trying to make. I don't think I've been very eloquent in doing it, but it's written down here very clear that this would suggest if you reject it, it suggests that we're okay uh, with men in the pulpit who describe themselves as homosexual. And that's why this, and then the next article coming up, you know, talks about how we've got to, you know, start, we got to put down the pastel colors here. We actually have to start uh, using some, uh, you know, some pretty stark colors so we can paint uh you know the proper picture here um and then specifically you know with what what's the spirit of the age or the sin of the age right now i mean it's it's rampant it's homosexuality we talked about this a little bit last week about how the culture and the uh, lgbt uh enclave they don't they don't lose very often (laughs) it doesn't seem like in, in society but um you know this is a this is very clear i mean this is not really just about homosexual uh, homosexuality either it is about you know what the bible says we're standing up for the inerrancy of scripture here um and and i'm struck and you know as i as i look at this um you know there are there are people who i feel like uh worry about awkward conversations they may have to have with their friends maybe there's some ruf ministers who are worried about the awkward conversations that they'll have to have with you know gay people on campus or or people who are sympathetic to gay once they find out oh you know you work here you're a pca guy well they don't let uh, homosexuals be ministers well i feel like those are conversations that people should welcome yes that's correct and let me tell you why and let me tell you what else the bible has to say about not just homosexuality but all sin um you know these are these are opportunities these are gospel opportunities uh they're not hindrances and and we should you know we should stand on that that the that the you know lord's word is not gonna come back and and it's you know in vain so anyway those are my rambling thoughts this morning dominic okay well the let's go to number two because it adds a little bit more and by the time we get to number three because these three sort of go together uh in their thinking they just add another dimension to it uh, the number two is, uh, hey, friends, you paying attention by uh, Eric Woods uh, Erickson, uh, who's a member of the Presbyterian Church of America and also is, uh, I think, a national uh, has a national syndicated talk show. Uh, he uh, starts out, some of my friends inside the Presbyterian Church of America have made excuses for pastors like Greg Johnson of Memorial Church in St. Louis and of Revoice, the conference held at his church a few years ago. Uh, just as a reminder that this whole debate and discussion in the PCA started in 2018, especially in the summer after the first Revoice conference, and the church was just becoming aware of the fact that there, you know, this this issue now had come into the PCA. It already had gone to many other uh, churches, and now it's coming into the PCA. So that's we're we're talking four years and just a little and uh, a few months after. So um, the, until that point, we there was a general discussion over time, but never the depth that we've had over the last four years. So Revoice has made ways for what seems to be an attempt to normalize unbiblical sexual identities behind biblical veneer. Uh, when we get to number three, which is the article by Carl Truman, he's actually going to address that because really you 
the issue is not just uh, homosexuality per se. It's also the nature that of how Revoice as a movement has morphed over time with what where it began to where it is now, and we'll get you will see that in a moment. So by talk having this discussion, we cannot have it uh, just on homosexual. Uh, we also have to do it with reference to Revoice. Uh, we fast forward to today's Revoice is still going, and Johnson's Church, referring to Pastor Johnson and Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis might uh, leave the PCA and there's we had the number one article last week was the uh, letter from the session of the Memorial Church in St. Louis to the congregation is indicating they were calling for a congregation meeting uh, to be taken take place on November 18 uh, to discuss the recommendation of the session to withdraw from the Presbyterian Church in America and so that's what uh, uh, Erickson's referring to there um, but he, uh, from an, he quotes here from an article from World Magazine. He says, oh, and what of Revoice's antics? Because like I said, Revoice now has moved along in these uh, four years as the fourth conference they had. And this last two years was in Dallas, not in St. Louis. And says, speaker, this is quoting from the, his quote from World Magazine. Speakers have always emphasized homosexuality as an identity, not just a behavior. But this year, such assertions from the dais uh, came uh, more insistent, became more insistent with speakers assiduously using civil rights language to represent radical change as settled truth. That identity uh, rhetoric extended to transgender ideology. Speakers frequently referred to sexual and gender minorities and used preferred pronouns along with terms such as women, quote, assigned female at birth. Uh, the group's uh, reach and influence are growing, but leaders now emphasize parachurch activities. Speakers frequently re reference ongoing rejection within the church and encountered attendees uh, and encouraged attendees to form their own spiritual communities in local revoice chapters. And then he said, wait, there's more. And during the conference's two-hour lunch break, revoice offered, quote, affinity groups broken into various categories of uh, gender minorities, family slash loved ones of LGBTQ+, uh, bisexual, pansexuals, asexuals, and aromantics, women, uh, women assigned female at birth, mixed orientation heterosexual marriage where one spouse remains same-sex attracted and celibate uh, partnerships where those uh, who are same-sex attracted but celibate live together. Inside B circles, these are called spiritual friendships. Other affinity groups were categorized by race, by BIPOC for uh, uh, black, uh, black or indigenous people of color and uh, AAPI for Asian American or Pacific Islanders. Okay, so that's a quote from World Magazine. See that it's being, uh, this, you know, broken down into parts. And again, the next article will even refer to that. Okay, uh, so, you know, this is not I've told you so moment. It's a mo moment to point out to my many friends in the PCA willing to deal biblically and compassionately with people struggling with sin have opened the door to those who do not want to struggle with sin, but normalize sin to make the sin uh, no longer a sin. Let me just read that. That's a important phrase uh, that uh, 
the we're opening the door uh, in our compassion. Uh, we need to deal passionately rather with people struggling with sin. Uh, have opened thou the door to those who do not want to struggle with sin, but normalize sin to make the sin no longer a sin. And so he says that's our problem is that we've moved from defining an action as well as thoughts, uh, behaviors as sin, uh, a not sin, a sin to not a sin. It's just something that we struggle with and we all struggle uh, with different kinds of sin. And so he says this is not going to end well. And that's the theme of his article. He says this is not going to end well. And I truly, really and truly hope my friends in the PCA are willing to put down the pastels now and pick up bright colors. In other words, he's using the analogy of when you're drawing something, you really want to make it stark. And if you use the pastels, it's soft, it's nice and sweet. But the bright colors actually make distinctions to draw of bright lines that need to be drawn, lest the hospitality and winsomeness of the denomination is overrun by those seeking to twist uh, truth straight into lies. So there is no difference, no great difference between revoice, which some in the PCA tried to excuse, and Matthew Vines, who is very active and prominent in the whole homosexual agenda movement, uh, and Matthew Vines, uh, who those in the PCA rejected. Just because Revoice started in the PCA church does not give it uh, it and those who seek to mainstream it a pass. So the those who seek to normalize that, which the Revoice would normalize, should not be in the pulpits of the PCA. So he basically is going back to the Article 1 and saying uh, it would be a yes, but kind of thing. And that's not the answer that is given. So um, Eric Erickson has uh, given us, I think, a more colloquial, very straightforward uh, kind of argumentation that uh, the PCA needs to take heed to. Yeah, and I appreciate his article. I do. Uh, towards the end, and you covered this part already, uh, the bright colors to draw bright lines that need, need to be drawn, lest the hospitality and winsomeness of the denomination is overrun by those seeking to twist truth straight into lies. Now, I would just say there is an argument, I think, that can be made that the idea of the PCA being winsome may be what got us uh, to this uh, place in the first uh, place. At least there's an argument to be made for that. Matter of fact, I was just curious. One more time, I decided to Google, or I didn't Google, I used a different search engine, uh, winsomeness. And winsome comes up and says, charming, often in a childlike or naive way. And the next article, Dominic, really, I think, kind of goes uh, into that, or, or, or the overall point is, um, you know, it, it's one thing to try to think about the plight of somebody who's, you know, tempted with homosexual lust, but how this has just gotten completely out of hand. That's what Eric Erickson is saying here. Carl Truman says it even more. And But those of us who have been sounding the alarm from the beginning, uh, you know, have have been told that we were, uh, you know, not not being very nice or that we uh, are making too much of this and that, you know, we're saying there's fire when there when there is no fire. But I think what is what doesn't need to be lost here in this discussion is our children. And that is where this really is for me. That's where this issue is centered for me is, is, is our children, the children who are that we, you know, are we covenant with uh, and what we are playing with here versus in the culture is telling us exactly, exactly what they want. And it's, it's dangerous. They're, they're, they're leading children children down the path to hell 
that is the truth of the matter right now. Um, when we look at the, the 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 whole pronouns of it's no longer just about being gay. And here we are 24 minutes in and we'll say slippery slope um, because that's wh- exactly what this is. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And uh, we've been trying to handle this with kid gloves and it's it's not working out. Uh, we see the fruits of that, in my opinion. This is just my opinion, Dominic. Well, OK, so well, no, I agree with uh, that what you're saying, Paul. And I think that what we're saying is now that we can't take on the issue of homosexuality without the frame that brought it. And that is the uh, revoice. And that's what uh, Erickson is raising uh, because it is morphing into something that is easily now moving from its apparent uh, beginnings as quote, the defender of the side B proposition to uh, moving sliding easily into becoming side A very quickly. And it can be by those quotes that Erickson gave from uh, World Magazine, who was on the on the ground making, you know, a live and reporting. Um, that means it shifted. Well, in the same sense, article number three from Carl Truman uh, really picks up on that and says, yes, there is that movement uh, and the shift that has taken place, which is what others have predicted. Again, slippery slope. There it is. Number two used uh, that moving in a certain direction, you can't help but keep going. The logical conclusion is going to be that revoice is becoming uh, more definitive and moving away from what it initially claimed it was going to do with just regard, just accept us as side B and go forward from that. The warning signs were still up at the time, by the way, but uh, nonetheless, that's what they claimed. And now it's morphed into something else. So in Uh, Carl Truman's article, which is into the anthropological chaos, uh, and he mentions the the subtitle is the moral turn of revoice. So the revoice is what's changing. And then there are people identified with that and buying into the continued morphing of of revoice. So he says when the uh, Nashville statement was launched in 2017, um, he didn't sign it. A lot of evangelical and um, broadly evangelical folks across the spectrum in reformed churches, evangelical churches signed it. He says, I didn't sign it. And he says, main reason is I subscribe by vow to the Westminster Confession of Faith as a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And uh, I have yet to come across a contemporary moral issue that cannot be addressed using uh, the positive teachings contained in the, in the Westminster standards. Thus, Some uh, years earlier, I declined to sign a statement against child abuse, not on the grounds that I'm actually in favor of such abuse, of course, but simply because I already affirmed via the Westminster Standards an ethical position that by implication makes my position on the matter clear. So if you've taken that vow and you really are committed to a clear understanding of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, then it covers these things. It may not use the word child abuse and it does, may not use the word same-sex attraction per se, but it covers that in, in principle. So he says the reason of me not signing the a Nashville statement still holds, though that should not be read as a criticism of anyone whose conscience led them to do so. I am also a believer in Christian freedom on such issues. So, you know, it's not a, a sin to do, uh, not to do it or not to do it. But he says, here's another reason for not signing, uh, however. He says, that was my my concern was, uh, and, and he says, then this reason no longer applies. 
uh, my concern in 2017 is that dialogue with those who were dubbed side B, which we just mentioned, uh, would be prematurely foreclosed by such a document. So in other words, it already took a position. And now this is a new notion. This whole thing of side B was, you know, new. Uh, remember, he says side B activists identify as LGBTQ in orientation, but say they are committed to refrain from sexual sin, uh, though uh, through LGBTQ behaviors. Side A is the scheme, and this scheme refers to those who claim a sexual orientation as LGBTQ and in, can engage in those behave, sexual relationships and behaviors. So that's the difference, again, that we have. He says, but my concern now has shifted because of what has taken place with Revoice. And he says, um, with uh, reports of gender and trans uh, theology uh, making its way in firmly into uh, Revoice 2022, which was only the fourth year it's had its meeting, uh, for dialogue seems now to be over. Uh, and he says, again, if you go back and read the excellent article and report from World Magazine, which outlines it very carefully, you, you'll see this. Subtle debates about the nature and moral status of same-sex attraction are one thing, which is where we started back in 2018. The arrival of preferred pronouns, of which the use of the plural they and them for an individual is the most ridiculous example. And, and then he has a parenthesis here. He says, except for we, Brit we Brits, uh, who do ref uh, use the royal we for the British monarch, uh, is well beyond subtle, subtlety. Uh, ordinary Christians might be excused for not following this and out of discussion of, uh, uh, and outs, ins and outs of discussion of sexual concupiscence, mm -hmm. but the arrival of gender confusion is something all that should um, be able to, that we should all be able to grasp. So sadly, the development it was predictable. My hope in not signing Nashville was that we, the dialogue would continue and those heading down the celibate gay Christian path would uh, hear the concerns of those who think that such is a pastorally wrong move. Observing from the sidelines in this year since, it strikes me that the dialogue can only take place when opponents treat each other as people of goodwill. My knowledge of debates surrounding Revoice and Side B is not exhaustive, but it's hard uh, to find one high-profile critic of the movement who was taken with real seriousness by Revoice advocates. Any criticism seems to be derided as stupid, as failing to understand the subtleties of the case, as deliberately rep misrepresenting Side B, or simply as hateful. So that's where his arrived. So what he is saying is that the time for good, solid debate of being able to in, invoke, you know, clarity as we, uh, you know, uh, move in that direction has left us, um, you know, uh, broken apart. And it's not so much because of the debate if we stayed with the words meaning uh, biblically and theologically and historically. But it's because Revoice has been moving, and now there's really a divide between what's really going on in these votes. So whether all those who voted for the amendments at the assembly, he says, did so in good faith is beside the point. The speed and ferocity of the reaction immediately turned the ecclesiastical process into a straight fight between factions. 
and the idea that anyone might have concerns with revoice in side B because of genuine and loving Christian concern over the impact and implication was no part of the equation. And so his conclusion is the same as what we saw with uh, both the uh, Article 1 on uh, yes or no, but uh, also with Erickson. He says, now we have apparently arrived at the gender ideology into a mix. I'm either a prophet, no, I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, but I predict that even this will be blamed on the conservatives and the traditions because they were intransigent uh, and transcendent and not loving enough in the first iteration of revoice. But whatever exculpatory rhetoric used, one thing is now clear. To stay with revoice is not merely to legitimize, legitimate more than subtle distinctions about sexual identity. In truth, it is to lend support to the anthropological chaos currently gripping American society. That's where we are and where this debate has brought us just in a very short period of time of four years. So uh, all the more reason for the church to make sure it's clear in how it presents itself and what it puts into its documents to give clarity to the rest of the church. I really wonder, Dominic, if there will be somebody in the PCA, anybody who who initially supported this revoice in 2018, didn't didn't think it was a big deal, who now seeing just how far they're going. Uh, and I would argue that the reason uh, they're going towards the gender stuff now is because that's what their customer base wants, by the way. Uh, this, this is where the culture's gone, and that's where the customers are, but maybe I'm just a little bit too much of a cynic. Uh, but is there going to be anybody who was on the Revoice bandwagon who now says, oh, no, 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 I was wrong, we got to step off. And whoever that person is, I'd love for them to write about it um, if, if you're out there. Um, and I, I, but I'm, I'm skeptical that that person, I mean, do we have the ability to admit that we're wrong when, when it comes to these issues i i hope so right but again, and i think it's just uh, paul that your, your point's well taken and i think what's happening with uh, these articles that we're seeing right now is the distinctions becoming clearer and so it, with a little bit more time i think there will be those who said i could go with a original revoice and with that side b i, I could i can understand that but now that the agenda has shifted uh, to accept revoice as it's morphed, it's not going to uh, be yeah. good. So that's where you're right. Someone who uh, started in support and thought it was okay in that broadest sense, uh, can they see and recognize what Erickson's saying, what uh, Dr. Bruce is saying, what uh, Carl Truman is saying, and uh, the shift that has taken place? Yeah, and maybe they'll do a complete about face and say, well, you know, what side B is wrong as well. That that would be that would be my yeah. prayer. But yeah. you know, this one paragraph, I don't think you read. Indeed, when the Presbyterian Church in America proposed changes to its Book of Church order last year, the immediate response from high-profile revoice advocates in that denomination was not, as it should have been given their ordination vows, to listen to the concerns of the General Assembly and engage in a time of self-reflection, but rather to denigrate the chamber, the characters of the men who passed the motion as dupes of, quote, Southern pietism, end quote, and galvanize supporters to defeat the proposals in the presbyteries. And, uh, you know, here we are. I would just say to anybody out there who, uh, you know, when you heard about Revoice 2018, if you were grieved, worried, concerned, even outraged, maybe uh, thank the Lord. Thank the good Lord for giving you the wisdom and the discernment to immediately understand how dangerous uh, this was and how wrong it was.
Absolutely. Well, if uh, there is no change, then the next article um, is uh, number four is United Methodist Church exits accelerate, ex- exits, plural, accelerate. Uh, it is expected that 1,500 and likely more churches will vote to exit this year, and perhaps a total of 3,000 to 5,000 churches exiting by the end of 2023. So that's quite a, a movement. Of course, the United Methodist Church is quite large uh, right now. And uh, so so just in 2022, 1,500 churches uh, and maybe even three to 5,000 more uh, by the end of uh, 2023. And so we ask what what is taking place this is an article by Mark Tooley, who himself is a, in the United Methodist Church and has a strong commitment to it and wants to, has been working on that side of the church aisle to uh, bring Re- Reformation change uh, sharpness to the historic you know, uh, Methodist um, theology, which is uh, Wesleyan uh, theology, but nonetheless very uh, he's committed to that. So um, he gives the data of what is taking place uh, in throughout the United Methodist is with the global Methodist number of years ago, realizing that it, it was untenable in the this whole area of the uh, human sexuality, which is the center and focus of the main of the debate, uh, that the, the house divided itself against itself cannot stand. And it was ripping the church apart. And they had internal rules that said if a church didn't like it, uh, the property belonged to the denomination. And so churches were staying in, so forth. So they finally arrived when it got so intense uh, to work out a uh, a plan by which the uh, church, any church that decided to leave, there would be uh, these would be the rules by which they could leave a certain amount of vote of each congregation and they could take their property and assets with them and so forth. And there would be a window period of when that could be done. So now that is being executed um, after um, the, that decision a couple of years ago, it's now beginning to. Uh, move into. So this article by uh, Mark uh, Tooley and also article number nine is dealing with one specific church, which he refers to here, uh, St. Andrew United Methodist in Plano, Texas, which is a church of 6,500 members, just as voted to exit United Methodism. It's Pastor Arthur Jones, son of Houston uh, Bishop uh, Scott Jones and nephew of former Duke Duke Divinity School Dean Greg Jones. The historical Methodist theology and our focus on Jesus is uh, what we aim to protect, he explained. And that's part of the reason they are leaving. On the church's website, notes that the church now, uh, church's now deceased former longtime pastor had started considering disaffiliation years ago and asked church leaders to monitor the inevitable fragmenting of the United Methodist uh, Church. Uh, the pastor died in July, but had left a recording using uh, urging disaffiliation. So that is the uh, the premise here that the that the uh, sexual identity issue or the sexual issue of uh, uh, something other than just the biblical defined term of, of, of sexuality. Uh, sex being between one man, one woman in the context of covenant marriage, any movement, whether heterosexual, homosexual, that doesn't comport with that and is out of accord with uh, God's standard. 
And so uh, it's happening throughout churches. Every Almost every church that has adopted the side A, no, in fact, I'll change that. All those that have accepted the side A have indeed gone through what the Methodists are now going through. And in fact, it's interesting, there's an article on the Aquila Report uh, even today that uh, just recently the uh, Presbyterian Church USA uh, is now going to, in their uh, reporting of membership, actually have a delineation of, since we're now an, in, an inclusive church, which reads that we're accepting of uh, all sorts of the LGBTQ+, plus, whatever it may be, uh, we want to actually have a, how many in that church in their membership uh, identify uh, or practice, uh, identify or are practicing um, uh, LGBTQ individuals in terms of their view of sexuality. So now they're going to define it and break it down even further to know that. So that article is up now. So th this is the um, result. Why? Because there's something both, of course, biblical, but there's also something intuitive uh, that um, th that they cannot coexist with that kind of light and darkness kind of thing. And I think this is an example because uh, the United Methodists aren't sometimes known for their strong, strong conservatism, but there are within the pale those that have not found the need to bail. Yep, that's exactly right, Dominic. And they have their limit, and this is it. And uh, <clears throat> I've, I've mentioned this on the show, but uh, in my in my hometown, the you know the big Methodist church downtown, they disaffiliated. And uh, it was not without social media, uh, you know, fits <laughs> by, uh, you know, by supporters or members of the uh, LGBT people. Um, and but, you know, it was a good thing. I, and, it, and it was interesting, you know, the, 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 the whole community was even if you weren't Methodist, you were rooting for them because what they're standing up for is is, again, not just what the Bible says about homosexuality, but what the Bible says about everything. And uh, and they successfully were able to do it, and they they left. And um, every time I drive by there, I just you know I'm I'm happy for them. I'm happy for any group of believers, any group of believers that claims Christ and stands on what His Word says. That's something to be celebrated. And I'm really, I mean, it's good. Your point is not lost though. When you go side A, this is what happens. You know, you're yeah. you're going to have a split. You're going to have people leave. And so that is definitely something just like if you go side B, you eventually go side A. I mean, yep. that's also very, very clear. So, well, and it is the case. And uh, that's the reason why we're saying that the before Revoice itself had gone through the kinds of changes that it, we've just reported for these other articles uh, that that was being said. And saying so, the issue here was not whether we're compassionate or loving, we're winsome, and we'll pick up winsomeness on Article Eight. It does come up, you and your uh, sort of your rant about winsomeness uh, left off the fact that our friend Tom Harvey has a good article on that. But the but it's that the um, we we accommodate thinking that showing that would be compassionate or winsome. Uh, for the sake of the gospel, and in reality, it it doesn't have that effect. Well, Article Number Five uh, broadens the whole discussion. Doesn't even mention homosexuality now. Uh, here we already get through four articles, and you can see how much it's a part of the church, and how this is on the mind of readers. Because, 
they've chosen the numbers they have. Uh, because remember, we publish 56 articles every week, and not all of them deal with the same topic. We have a broad range of topics on the Aquila Report. That's uh, entitled Another Jesus. So now we're having problems with defining Jesus, but that happens in every generation of the church. If you look back, uh, everyone wants to paint Jesus in their own image as opposed to being conformed to his image. And this is by uh, Andrew Matthews, who is, like I said, an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church of Australia. So that's a PCA work, but it's in Australia. Uh, and um, he talked about this another Jesus, and he basically says, as the evangelical Christian church has been pummeled by secular critics for being hateful for her biblical views on ethics, which we just not been talking about, many church leaders have responded by shifting the focus from ethics to Jesus and Jesus is in quotes in this article. They say that the main thing is to know Jesus and make him known and get uh, not get broiled down in controversial ethical issues. By the way, that phrase right there is part of the reason I think that uh, it took the church a while to recognize that the ethical issue, no matter how you can deal with it, it's going to be controversial. And so now the tendency is, look, no, 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 let's just leave it alone. He's going to refer to a phrase that comes out of the second great awakening that basically says there's uh, no creed, but Christ, no book, but the Bible. And that's all we need. Uh, and so you don't have to get down into the um, lower echelons or uh, explore theological notions anymore, especially as they apply to ethical norms. So he says to know Jesus Christ and make him known to the outside world is certainly a laudable goal, but, as they keep dropping, uh, name dropping Jesus, again in quotes, I start wondering who is this Jesus guy they keep talking about? And the more they talk about him, the less I recognize him. It has made me question if we are thinking about the same person. I have been, sne I have a sneaking suspicion that many churches are promoting, quote, another Jesus than the one that's revealed in the New Testament. So that's his thesis in this article is that I'm not, I don't recognize the definition of this Jesus that people are talking about. Let's just talk about Jesus only, not all these, uh, you know, ethical issues that divide. So taking a stand on the person of Jesus Christ ought to be the ultimate apologetic of every Christian for Christ. Uh, every Christian for Christ is the epicenter of our faith. Yet in our day, simply alluding to the name Jesus is not enough of a witness to this world. We need to have a theologically sound understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is Christology. Unfortunately, the Jesus that is being bandied about in modern church has become a poor substitute for the true and glorious Son of God. How so? And then he refers to a number of errors we won't uh, just go into. This will be a very good way to, and a good study. Again, uh, reasons that... Um, Matthews gives here then are uh, just a few things that he says we have to be careful about. So here's a good thing for us to study. So what's in the name? Uh, name the name is held in vain. He talks about we demoted Jesus as king, that he is sort of a teacher without morals, that he's not immoral, but he just uh, one that just loves that uh, compassion comes out here again. Just a good moral teacher um, doesn't uh, um, you know do anything to uh, uh, you know 
come after you or doesn't impl implicate you for anything or challenge you with regard to anything. Uh, the non-creedal Christ, and this is where he uses the adage, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, which ashes all types of fixed doctrinal positions. Established doctrines are considered human tradition or dead orthodoxy. Instead, what is offered is an emotional, experiential knowledge of Jesus. Uh, the Puritans of old pro, uh, promoted experimental uh, religion as opposed to mere nominalism, uh, but it is never divorced from doctrinal precision. When the contemporary church advocates for knowing Jesus, it cannot be the subjective 12-step variety committing your life to Jesus as you understand him, uh, as opposed to as the scripture uh, presents him. Uh, then he says also we have a distorted image of who he is, and he defines that. So the point that um, Dr. Matthews makes here, if the contemporary church is going to abandon all its theological uh, territory to take a final stand for Jesus Christ, it is better uh, for be for the real Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, be done with the palatable and tamed Jesus and introduce the world to the real Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, sent into the world to save and rule the world, crucified, dead, and buried, but risen and exalted, the one who receives sinners and makes them saints. Uh, the Christ who created and sustains all things will return once again to judge his enemies and make all things new. Any Christ less than this is not worth knowing. So we're really helped. And I think this sort of capsulates. Notice he doesn't deal with the specifically with the homosexual thing that we've talked about. He is saying that if we change the definition of Jesus, it's going to ruin the whole thing, no matter what you want to believe and hold to. And it's a very helpful article in that regard. I absolutely love it. My favorite part, you kind of touched on it, but the demoted king, the misuse of Christ's name is inexorably tied to the church's failure to recognize the majestic rule of Christ over this world. Christians who regularly refer to just Jesus emphasize his incarnation and humiliation during his past life and ministry on the earth to the detriment uh, uh, to the uh, detriment of acknowledging his present kingdom and ministry from heaven as the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's suffering during his incarnation certainly enabled him to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, but he no longer lives in that humiliated state. He retains the experience of his former weakness, but rules now with his present power. Space does not allow for the citation of every scripture verse from both testaments that speak about Christ's current power and rule over this world. But and then you list a few verses. Um, you know, if you want to introduce people to Jesus, the person uh, uh, they are meeting is not the guy who lived in Galilee for 30 years, but the one who sits on the throne for all eternity. You know, just this, this article really makes you think, and it does uh, make you, uh, wonder about a lot of things about how we how we got here you know his use of the word palatable the palatable jesus also could be a synonym for that would be the the jesus who is nice you know but if you go and you you look uh at what he did and and how um yes he did love sinners but how he confronted uh the powers that be the uh, uh you know where the pharisees or the sadducees and and uh, how it was um you know, he, he he didn't mince his words, if you will, when it when it came to them and what they were doing to the to the people. So, right. OK, well, the left if something is left untouched or undealt with uh, because I think if you buy into certain propositions or 
under you know the definitions uh, the next article number six uh deals with um the ghastly truth about gender transitioning so that's the t of lgbtq uh is coming out and liberal elites can't stop it now by the way just as back up just with those all those initials that it just started out with l and g and then it moved to bisexual that's the b and then to the t the transgender and then to uh other uh you know the other things so the thing is being sliced really thinly uh, uh here with anyone who wants to practice something that is aberrant to apparent and contradictory to over against what the scripture teaches so here this basically is the gender transitioning coming out and liberals elites can't really stop it so it refers to uh what where this issue arose at least recently uh is that um mike uh, michael walsh uh, walsh they're trying to seek to cancel this article says uh the daily wire podcast host and activists taking on gender ide ideologies there because they are uh, you know there's a it's a belief system his investigation into the vanderbilt university medical center's practice of transitioning children which included a video of one doctor noting that the surgeries are huge money makers, triggered Tennessee lawmakers to call for an investigation. And this has resulted in an announcement by Vanderbilt that it will be halting all, quote, sex change surgeries for underage patients while reviewing their pro uh, uh, processes. Uh, then the same thing happened over in uh, the uh, United Kingdom in the, England. Uh, where a Travis Stock clinic did this, the independent investigation found that children were being transitioned hastily and a class action suit with up to 1,000 families participating was close behind. Uh, there were plenty of commentators, even on the conservative side, who scoffed at the idea that a bare knuckle brawler like Michael Walsh and the Daily Wire could produce reportage that would create change, but there is a di direct line between Walsh's reporting and activism and a major hospital putting a hold on mutilating children. And this is undeniably huge. Walsh like, Walsh, like the rest of us, isn't perfect, but his activism against gender ideologies has been undeniably effective, and he gets results when others have not. So in this point is, is that, uh, that he just uncovered one area which is happening. We have 50 states. And there are large hospitals and teaching hospitals throughout the United States. So that if it's happening at Vanderbilt, most likely happening in other places. And there are there's more information in this article, uh, uh, you know, about that. <clears throat> but the point the um, makes is these facts are forcing their way into the mainstream uh, one story at a time. Consider, for example, the fact that in 2016, the British Social uh, Attitudes Survey indicated that 58% of people agreed with this statement. Transgender people should be able to change the sex on their birth certificate. In 2019, that number had declined slightly to 53%. By 2021, the percentage of people supporting that view plunged to 32. So from 58 in 2016, to 2021 to 32 believe that you can change your birth certificate. The fact is that the children who are, have been ruined by transgender ideology are coming forward and speaking, quote, their truth, which is a nice common phrase. Everyone has their own truth. 
uh, on every platform available to them and their stories are heartbreaking. And photos of children uh, who have undergone transition surgeries and he mentions one here that he says, if you can stamp stomach it, here it is, are horrifying to people, even when posting them are uh, doing so positively. So um, this is a movement that sort of running under the radar, but it was a part of the whole um, LGBT community and everything else that goes with that. And now it's being lifted up as something that uh, is not as beautiful and wonderful as people uh, made it out to be. And that there's that total, that gender fluidity and confusion uh, concept uh, really is someone, something that um, is not helpful at all. And so here's another one the church will have to speak to as parents say, you know, you know, come to the church and talk to the pastor and say, what do we do with my child's this way, that way? Well, let's look at it from a biblical perspective before we do anything else and um, not run away from it. So just this is more of a uh, an article that exposes what has happened and the results of allowing it to continue. Yeah, you know, the church has a lot of things to address. This is one of them in the future. The other one is how we handle the the coming, you know, merging or the attempted merging biology with with technology, like our own human uh, bodies and that sort of thing. Uh, there's going to be some very uh, hard questions to answer. But, you know, and I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer here, but the the picture of this all through high school or all through, you know, education, you, you inevitably take a history class and somebody poses the question of, of how how was Germany able to, to go down the path they did, you know, from 1929 to 1940? Like what what was, you know, how how did they allow this to happen? And if we look at ourselves in a mirror right now here in America in a society, I mean, we have parents who are taking their children to the doctor who are getting them drugs that are not even for what they're being used for to chemically castrate them to completely change who they are going to be for the rest of their life, essentially sacrificing them. We have parents who are taking their kids to get top and bottom surgeries, mutilating them and calling it health care and calling any of us who object to it bigots and, and people who are unloving. Now, that is just the, the, that's just the picture. I mean, you, you want to know how this stuff happens? Look what we're doing. We are calling evil good and good evil. And, and, it's, uh, and, it's, it's, and it's also a global phenomenon, Dominic. You know, this isn't really – it's certainly a, a, there's a dichotomy. There's the West and there's Western governments, and they support all of this in lockstep. And they, they, they promote it. Our, for, our chief foreign policy – in a, in a lot of these documents, if you actually go read, is to export LGBT propaganda to other countries. And one more thing, and I know this is not going to be a very popular opinion, but uh, on this subject of what we're doing to our kids versus what we're trying to get other people's, uh, you know, other countries, whether it's Serbia or any of these Eastern European, you know, NATO was formed to protect Western Christian Europe from the godless communists. And I think we have to ask ourselves, who are the godless communists today and where are they? And sorry to be a Debbie Downer, but that, those, are just, <laughs> that's, those are my thoughts. When I see yeah. an article like this, those are my thoughts. 
Well, it reminds me of uh, Francis Schaeffer as he, near the end of his life, was speaking to this, uh, mentioned, you know, he kept using the phrase that once there was a uh, consensus of Christianity in the culture, and that gave it its you know, erection and gave sort of boundary lines and guardrails. Uh, then we moved from that to a memory of the consensus, and now the memory is gone. And when the memory of the consensus is gone, then that the benefits of a Christian consensus, it did not mean that you have to become a Christian or join the church or that everybody's a believer, but it just says that the uh, the parameters of a Christian consensus created the moral guardrails uh, that preserve culture as it did. So that basically, uh, I think, is important to continue and uh, remember how Schaefer uh, made this point. And that's back in the 70s and early 80s before he died. Okay, number uh, seven is uh, takes a different direction. Five recommended resources on the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is by Carrie Hahn, who is an assistant editor at Ligonier Ministries. Um, it says, in a consumer-driven society, we can be tempted to think that uh, newer is always better than the old, and the older is irrelevant. The world tells us that diverging from biblical instruction is uh, evidence of enlightenment and progress. Yet believers know the truth. Our God is unchanging in his character, his purposes, and his will. And because of that, we find comfort in his enduring word, and look back in history to learn uh, from summations of biblical truth penned by faithful saints. So here are, she says, five different um, uh, books uh, and commentaries that reflect on the help people reflect on the Westminster Standards and the Confession of Faith in particular uh, that will be helpful in that study. So we're now we're taking back to those uh, ground foundational documents that deal with the foundational truths, uh, doctrines of the church that give us those good solid guardrails as we go up the uh, the passes of life and uh, uh, hold, making sure we don't go off the cliff. So uh, she mentions, for instance, our C. Uh, Sproul's book, uh, Truth, We Confess, a systematic exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith is one. Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn, Confessing the Faith, A Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And of course, all these are in the article that will be part of what you receive tomorrow in your newsletter. So if you don't get it all down, it, you'll have it before you that way on the article. Uh, the number uh, three is Recovering the Reformed Confessions, Our Theology, Piety, and Practice by R. Scott Clark. Uh, there's the Westminster Confession of Faith for Study Classes by G.I. Williamson. And then there's the Theology of Westminster Standards and it, uh, Historical Context and Theological Insights by John Fesco, J.B. Fesco. So you can uh, take those there, many others, but here are five that Kerry uh, Hahn recommends, and I think they really will be helpful uh, in coming back to those things that are grounding and has served the church so well and to open up its understanding so that we're not uh, daunted, afraid of taking up sort of a, such a, a heavy uh, uh, confession and, you know, with uh, big words and the, and the like, and see the beauty of the confession and the catechisms that have been given to us uh, to give solidity and good foundation for the life of the church. I agree with what you say. I'm glad it made the top 10. Uh, yes. Now to winsomeness. <laughs> That's right. Number eight. So Tom uh, Harvey 
winsomeness redux, that is review or uh, another pass, uh, focusing on the virtues expected of Christ's followers. Uh, Tom Harvey, who's a member of the um, uh, Woodruff Road uh, Presbyterian Church in uh, the Greenville, South Carolina area, uh, there's debate over the desirability of winsomeness continues. And so he refers to a recent article by Michael Kruger, who's the uh, president of Reform Seminary in Charlotte. And he maintains that character matters and that it affects how our message is likely to be received and that the reformed world is in need of much improvement on this point. Uh, the, those three uh, points are indisputable. He mentions what they are, but uh, it is not clear that they have close relation to winsomeness uh, that he is asserting. So central to his argument is the contention that being winsome is simply embodying the fruits of the spirit uh, in our lives. Uh, he says, and he goes on to find that this, uh, Tom Harvey's uh, statement is, I disagree with this definition, however, and assert that while his ministerial efforts are laudable, the scheme of classification is mistaken. The essence of winsomeness does not uh, it does not lie in the sundry fruits of the spirit or being Christ like Christ. The conception of winsomeness that Kruger and other others praise uh, regards winsomeness or as something in the person who is deemed winsome. Indeed, Kruger used winsome as a synonym for virtuous or spirit filled. But winsomeness, like attractiveness, is in the eye of the beholder. In essence, uh, does not lie it in essence does not lie so much uh, in what one is but in how he or she is perceived by others we describe other people as winsome when we regard them as charming uh, likable pleasant polished and generally enjoyable to listen to or keep company with such people tend to be many in the uh, things that the kruger regards as essential such as the kind as kind or peaceable but their winsomeness does not lie in those as such uh, things as such, but in those things uh, that uh, those things lead us to have a positive esteem of them. So he says, so what is the way in which we can uh, move forward on this? Note that the context uh, of winsomeness, which he gets from um, Dictioner, is that followed by some caveat means if you have to follow something caveat uh, means that his kindness, peaceful and gentleness, patience and goodness, referring to the fruits of the spirit, then are all result in uh, winsomeness in practice. There are many people who are kind, good and pleasant, whom we find only partly likable at best and uh, do not necessarily inspire the feelings of fondness. So he goes on to uh, address what the alternatives would be. And um, so he says there's an alternative alternative to winsomeness, which I delineate in the subsequent article, which um, is was on the Equal Report a couple of days after this article. Uh, for our purposes here, I will mention one of three things. One, the word worst people in the world can often be described as winsome. Anytime uh, you meet a winsome person, you ought to tread carefully, for there is a good chance that person is deceptive, manipulative, uh, fiend with bad intentions, an adulterer, con man, abuser, or some other form of back black guard who is uh, who is compelled to hide his true nature to accomplish a foul aims. My disagreement in this article then does not concern how we behave. We are agreed 
that we are to imitate Christ, walk by the spirit, embody uh, virtue in all that we are to do. The disagreement is merely over, um, over what terms or concepts should be used to describe such a manner of living. Uh, so he basically says winsome is an ancient um, English word that fell out of use until it was revived in the 18th century Scottish poet, um, as the aforementioned Robert Burns online uh, etymology dictionary. Uh, Burns uh, was a fierce critic of the Church of Scotland. Consider the thick irony that we are running about desperately trying to be winsome ultimately because an opponent of our Scottish forebears <laughs> revived the word. So given the history, he says, we would be better served to abandon the desire for winsomeness and all attempts to repurpose it and make our own and instead return to scripture's ideas in terms regarding multifaceted virtue, which is to be exhibited by the followers of Christ. So that's what he calls us to, that there are other terms that are probably more uh, accurate and better to use um, than than what has been proposed. So good challenge here that it's if if likability is the chart and people want to receive us, then we're probably going to be walking lightly, and that's probably part of the reason why we're struggling in the debates that we've been talking about uh, with all these articles that be before this one. Yeah, as I've read this article, I'm struck by my definition of winsome, <laughs> or at least uh, the impression of winsomeness just comes across to me as uh, feminine, quite frankly. And uh, I, I would wonder if somebody asked, uh, what's the opposite of winsomeness in, in this context? I wonder how many people, if given a multiple choice answer, would pick toxic masculinity. Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> those, those are just my my thoughts on on this. So I, but I agree, uh, we do need to abandon uh, this uh, winsomeness idea. Yeah. It, it's to be truthful, and uh, you know, handle the truth well and with light, and uh, as Paul says, salted with grace, and uh, that probably says it a little clearer in terms of doing it, uh, addressing any tight or important issue. Um, okay, number nine is that we've already referred to is Texas Mega Church announces decision to leave the United Methodist denomination, and it's is referring uh, to the um, the St. Andrew United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas, that we talked about in the other article that um, Mark Tooley uh, gave us the broader picture of. So this is just one example. People did turn to it, uh, and it says at least 500 United Methodist churches in Texas alone including four of the top six in membership have left or are leaving. So the there's a lot of bailing going on um, from a church with long, you know, deep roots going back to, you know, the uh, when Met Wesley in the 1700s uh, founded the movement because it was started as a movement before it became a denomination. And, um, and it's lost its way and it's bought into the modern, um, uh, contention, you know, all the definitions that the world it, is defining, and they were trying to be winsome, and uh, winsome has led to decline, and it's going on as churches saying that we want to operate in the context of truth. So uh, I think, and Paul, do you have any other comments to say on that before we, because we, I think, is... No, sir. We've already bled that one. Like you said, you have one right there in your hometown that uh, is no longer considered winsome, I guess, right? 
I guess not. No. <laughs> it's, it's, okay. So um, let, let's see. Wait a minute. Let me pull this up. Okay. So with the last number 10, the boys of feminism uh, left behind. Uh, you don't upend 12,000 year old social order without experiencing cultural effects. And this is by uh, Richard V. Reeves. Uh, he says, in the span of just a few decades, an astonishing epical revolution in human relations has occurred. Since the widespread adoption of agriculture, patriarchy has been the norm in human societies no longer. Patriarchy, patriarchy has been effectively demolished in advanced econo economies. Women are no longer dependent on men for material resources. By tearing down barriers to education and the labor market, feminism has achieved a central goal of securing for women economic independence and power. In 1970, there were changes uh, being uh, that changes began gaining steam. Women were locked out of many educational professional opportunities on American campuses. Males dominated in undergraduate enrollment. They were 58% of students to females, 42. Uh, men got more than 85% of PhDs in law schools, about 90% of students were men. Today, undergraduate enrollment has flipped. Female enrollment is at 58%. Women were awarded 53% of PhDs, and they make up the majority in law of law students. Uh, whole uh, professions like psychology and veterinary medicine are becoming overwhelmingly female. 40% of American women now earn more than average man, up uh, up from 13% in uh, 1979. And so on it goes with these uh, statistics sociologically and so forth. And the question is that he raises here is that in the movement towards a uh, assertion of feminism, that it has affected um, um, family life, marriage life, and has affected definitely uh, uh, children and in uh, terms of this celebration. Now, whether uh, it's tied to uh, feminism per se or whatever, it's just the idea that he says one component of the shift in culture has been uh, the feminist movement and what effect it's had on life and thinking about uh, all the way things from abortion to, um, you know, uh, seeking, you know, the one's own place. Um, and, you know, and it just, uh, that it, it just is uh, upset the equilibrium of what was present before. And the ones that are seem to be affected are children, especially, uh, boys, uh, says a new model of mature masculinity and fatherhood is desperately needed. Marriage provides structure and legal protection for partners. But the reality is that large numbers of Americans are having children outside of marriage. We need decent fathers, no matter their marital status, to be deeply involved in their children's lives. This means expanding the rights of unmarried fathers to spend time with their children. Paid parental leave for both mothers and fathers would also benefit the entire family. The idea that helping boys and men run counter to continued uh, two continued efforts to lift up girls and women is uh, not just wrong. It is the opposite of the truth. Men and women can and should rise together. And so uh, that's a thesis here that, uh, you know, again, it, 
there are probably other considerations and sort of the, the whole demographic of things. But at least here's one says, here's what I see in st the statistics and the sociological development and what's taking place in our culture today. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's no question that feminism is uh, hurting uh, masculinity. And, you know, everything has been feminine feminized, if you will, in our culture, specifically, you know, mentions you know, young men who are in elementary school, um, you know, they're being told they have disabilities. They're being told, and, and the reason is, is because them being naturally masculine, just what would come naturally for the way God made them is now socially unacceptable in classrooms. Um, and so that's a big part of this. And, you know, if you just look at the track and you mentioned Schaefer earlier, you know, abortion, the Christian consensus, he said was gone, you know, in 73, um, uh, and I have often thought to myself, you know, was did we make the woman the idol when we when we gave them the right to murder without being prosecuted or without having the state? I mean, the state essentially created this separate class. And then on down the slippery slope. Now our idol has failed us because we don't even know what a woman is anymore. Dominic, a sitting Supreme Court justice in her confirmation hearings wouldn't said she's not a biologist and can't give you the definition of what a woman is. I find it all extremely uh, interesting, you know, if you just you really try to if you really try to analyze uh, what has gotten us to this point. And it's a lot of different things. You know, it's 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 foolish to just pinpoint, you know, one thing. But um, you can take some of these data points and I think really extrapolate some interesting uh, th some interesting ideas that that really line up with you know uh, Romans one or just really the the, the the critique of the of the human condition when we when we uh, uh, turn to sin and, and and excuse our sin and call our sin good. So absolutely. Well, it's uh, those are your top ten articles for this week, uh, the Equal Report and Weekly Review. Uh, like I said, we you will receive the newsletter on Tuesday. That'll be November first at around 11 o'clock Eastern time, depending on what uh, uh, time zone you may be in. It comes out at 11 o'clock uh, on the Eastern time. Uh, and by the way, just thinking about that, we're saying it's Eastern uh, daylight time. Uh, this Sunday, you don't forget that we go back to standard time. So change your clocks. And this is one week. If you do take advantage of it, you get an extra hour of sleep. That's right. Uh, Fall but normally people stay up, right? <laughs> they normally stay up. Yeah. So this Sunday, make sure you change your clocks. You can't be late for church this time because uh, uh, you, uh, you fall back in the springtime. People always show up in the benediction. So it's um, good to have you join us for this edition of the Equal Report Weekly Review and trust that you will uh, share that, the articles here. Please forward the newsletter you receive. Just click forward and send it to friends and others that you might think would be enjoy uh, you know, perusing and reading and being challenged and trust it will be the same for you and your uh, church life, uh, your relationship with others so that uh, we need to engage. We need to make sure our minds are sharpened by the things that we're reading and discussing and that we always go back to the scripture as our foundational uh, rule by which we make evaluation of all things. So until the next time, we pray God's blessing upon you.